Chris. Over to you. Do you want to um, uh, introduce ourselves to uh, to everyone on the uh, webinar today? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Darren. Well, good afternoon, um, everyone, and thank you very much for to joining uh, today's session on global data protection uh, legislation. Um, I've invited uh, Fifth Step to, uh, to to run this presentation today. In fact, Fifth Step are going to look at our own GDPR compliance um, to make sure that we put in our process and procedures. But also what they're going to do is they're going to help us to put in a, a GDPR audit model for our clients should they wish uh, to go down that route. The reason why I've selected Fifth Step is that they are our specialists in compliance, primarily across the financial services and insurance uh, sector. And they have got a, a number of experienced data protection officers globally that support clients uh, with uh, GDPR. Uh, Darren himself has been working with the Data Protection Act throughout his career. And he's actually speaking at the IOD on the 17th of October, specifically on GDPR at the IOD Digital Security Strategy event. So um, thank you very much, Darren, for running uh, today's uh, webinar. And I'd like to hand over to you, Darren. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, Chris. Well, we've got um, we've got a quite a good presentation here for you um, today. Uh, I'm going to start moving this through. Now, I hope everyone can see this. This all seems to be working from our end. So, if there are any uh, glitches or anyone not able to see the presentation as we go through, please do um, put that uh, into the chat window so that we can see and be aware of that. Um, just because uh, sometimes we can be uh, completely oblivious to the fact that things have perhaps stopped moving along uh, from your side. Um, we are also no, recording. Can't see your screen. Apologies for that. Oh well, that's um, that's the good start there so okay i've just started resharing that again i hope that that's going to start working let me just make sure that that's that's all in there okay is that any better chris can you see that perfect spot on marvelous okay well that's good Right. Okay. We are also recording this uh, this event, um, so we will um, make this available as a podcast um, uh, uh, as part of the Fifth Step um, on the Fifth, uh, Fifth Step podcast channel. Um, I'll give you details of how to find that um, later on, and you should get an email after the event as well, uh, allowing you to um, subscribe to that and um, and um, listen to it again. So, um, cracking on, um, the learning objectives. Um, this is just a high level, um, what we want to achieve um, from today. It's very much about um, increasing your understanding, uh, but also giving you some actionable steps and some things that you can start to look at for your organization and giving you some, um, you know, some timely advice around GDPR. GDPR is one of those uh, topics and one of those subjects that there is a lot of um, fear and misunderstanding about, um, in my opinion. Um, so today we won't be dealing with the fear factor because actually GDPR is just one of those things that businesses have to deal with. It's a risk like any other business risk. Um, so we'll be dealing with that uh, and uh, treating it in that in, in that way. Now, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to start a GDPR presentation without mentioning the fines that can be induced. This is usually the point where um, where people start drumming up the fear. Okay, the numbers are big. Okay, the fines can be as great as uh, 20 million euros or 4% of your um, global annual revenue, whichever is the greater. 
Okay, so it isn't just 20 million euros if you are a Google or someone like that um, who have a turnover of um, billions of um, you know, billions of do- dollars uh, globally. Um, it would increase. Uh, it would be the four percent of the uh, global annual revenue, uh, which would be used. Okay, so those are the scary bits, and that's why people get um, upset about it or get nervous about it, and that's uh, where people who play on the fear aspect uh, really drum that piece um, home. I'm not going to do that today. I'm just, uh, as I said, I'm going to walk you through it and uh, hopefully uh, make everyone feel quite comfortable about it. Okay, so here's um, some of the um, some of the brief headlines. Um, um, GDPR applies to companies irrespective of their location who are collecting, storing, uh, or processing personal or sensitive information about EU um, residents. Actually, I've made one of my uh, cardinal uh, mistakes there. It's actually not. Uh, yes, sorry, it is EU residences. Many people will be saying EU citizens, and it actually doesn't have anything to do with citizenship. It's actually to do with about residency, where you're actually based. Okay, so the key aspect there is that if you are processing, and that means collecting, storing, um, transforming, uh, viewing, uh, any of those things, any data that is considered to be personal data or sensitive personal uh, data that relates to EU residents, okay, you have to be following the GDPR. And that goes for whether you are based in um, the United States or in Australia or in France or in the UK, okay? The fines I've already mentioned, I'm not going to revisit those. And um, importantly, um, GDPR applies to um, uh, uh, UK-based companies irrespective of Brexit. This is another big uh, question and misunderstanding. Uh, The UK government has already said um, that they will be uh, maintaining uh, they will be maintaining um, compliance and equivalency with GDPR. It's absolutely uh, vital that they do that. And the last one, uh, GDPR will be enforced from May 2018. It's actually uh, May 25th, uh, 2018, uh, that you have to be uh, compliant, um, uh, that it will be enforced from. Okay, some of the some of the key terms. Um, I'll run through some of these. Uh, some of these are all really the important ones. But I'll run through some of these, and some of them we'll sort of pick up as we go along. But some of these are the key ones, and these slides will be available after um, after the webinar as well. Okay, so um, the data controller. Um, the data controller is the person, uh, the company, or organisation who de- determines the purpose and the manner of processing of the personal data. Okay, um, so. It's very much the organization, um, you know, so um, Acme Widgets Limited um, um, has a, an HR department. Uh, they are collecting their, their data for the purpose of um, employing uh, staff. Uh, that organization, Acme Widgets, is, uh, is the data controller in that respect. Okay. Below that in the green box, we define the purpose. So this is under the Data Protection Act and uh, under GDPR, you can... you are only allowed to collect data for a specific purpose or purposes, and you have to define those, and you can't change those after you've collected the data without re, uh, revalidating with the data subject, the, the person who the data belongs to. You can't change that, okay, after the event uh, without uh, without that, uh, the data subject's consent. So it can be multiple purposes. doesn't just have to be one. Um, but those have to be clearly laid out and clearly defined so that the data subject is well informed and knows exactly what it is they're signing up for. Consent is a big part of that. Um, and personal data, absolutely key 
um, definition as to what personal data is. We're going to pick up in more detail as we go through um, this uh, this webinar and make it clear what personal data is in respect to um, the, uh, to HR data, which is an absolutely HR departments are a really rich vein of of uh, personal and personal sensitive data. A data processor is um, anybody outside of the um, the data controller who processes the data on behalf of the data controller. Okay, so that can be a third party. So if you outsource um, your payroll processing, for example, um, the likelihood is that, that that organization is going to become or will be a data processor in the eyes of uh, the, the GDPR. And uh, sensitive data there, just to touch on that one, sensitive data is a special type of personal sensitive data and there's some specific categories and we'll talk about those ones as we go through too. Okay, okay the rights of the data subject. Now these are the core rights. So this is really the, the fundamentals of uh, the data subject's rights under the, under the GDPR. Um, what we're showing here is um, the right to be informed. Uh, why don't I run through them quickly? Okay, the right to be informed. This is the uh, right to be informed about what the data is going to be used for. Uh, and that um, has to be, um, unless um, unavoidable, has to be before the, the personal data is provided. Okay, so that, uh, that may offer some challenges in an HR setting, and we'll talk about some of those. The right of access, any data subject, so the person who's provided with the data, um, has the right to ask for access to the personal data that the organization, that the data controller um, um, holds on them. Okay. Um, under the data, uh, sorry, under the GDPR, um, that has, that request has to be fulfilled um, within uh, one month of the request. Now it can be extended by up to two months further um, in particularly complex cases, but, uh, um, uh, but it has to be um, explainable um, that it is actually a complex case. Um, it can't just be uh, extended um, for, for no good reason, just because you don't have enough, enough staff to um, fulfill the request, for example. So you have to be able to fulfill that within one month. The right to rectification um, is um, Having uh, had access to the data, if a data subject recognizes that um, some of the data you're holding on them is incorrect, you have to be able to correct that or offer the ability to correct it. So in an HR setting where you're actually holding details about staff, you may, for example, um, provide your staff access to your HR system so they can maintain their own um, their own records. That would um, definitely satisfy, satisfy that requirement. But you also have to think about um, uh, People who perhaps haven't joined the organization whose um, um, you know, CVs you may be holding for a period of time, for example, if they were to request um, uh, perform a, um, uh, ask for their personal data and then notice that some of it is incorrect, uh, you'd have to be able to correct that on their behalf for them. The right to erasure. Um, this is um, often called the right to be forgotten. Um, and this really relates to um, data subjects um, being able to request the deletion um, of their data. Now, in an HR setting, this is a um, uh, this is a curious one, and you can't really um, uh, perform or fully perform that uh, that role in a normal setting because um, you need the information in order for that person to be um, an employee. Now, once they've left the organisation, there is certain data you have to uh, keep. Um, in most jurisdictions, there's certain data you have to uh, keep for taxation purposes, for example, in which case you can't fully comply 
um, with a complete uh, erasure request or right to be forgotten request um, in that case either. Um, so an organization does have the right to refuse the right to be forgotten, but again, it has to be justifiable. It has to be for good reason, not just because it doesn't suit that organization or because their systems don't support uh, the, re the erasure of, um, or, yeah, the deletion of um, certain data, for example. The right to restrict processing. Um, this, again, really goes back to um, if the data is incorrect. Um, um, outside of the HR field, uh, if you can imagine a situation where a bank um, perhaps has uh, details um, uh, uh, about a data subject, uh, they, um, they receive a request uh, for the data, and the data subject notices that uh, you know, there's perhaps uh, two or three people living in, a, in an apartment block um, with, uh, with the same or similar uh, name, and that some of those details are being confused between those individuals. Well, in between the time of uh, the data being rectified, being corrected, um, the data subject can ask for um, the data, the rights to restrict processing. So for that data not to be used during the course of uh, or until it's been corrected. Okay. In an HR sense, again, that may, um, you, you may be able to think of uh, examples that I'm missing there. But in an HR sense, it's a little bit more, um, it's not, uh, not going to be as common, should we say. The right to data portability, again, this is going to be a very interesting one for um, some of the financial services where particularly um, the, the comparison websites, uh, you know, the credit card comparison websites, the insurance uh, comparison websites, for example, where um, data subjects have the right to be able to request uh, their personal data in a in a common format, an industry accepted format. So the ability to uh, take their data and uh, to give it to another um, another organization who's going to provide a similar service. Now, in an HR sense, I can very much see this uh, being something that's um, uh, going to be um, uh, requested as part of uh, um, you know, a lever process. It may be that uh, uh, the data subject could ask for their information to be provided in that format, in a common format, um, so that they can take it to their next employer and have that information um, uh, you know, imported directly into their system with no uh, no possibility of the uh, the information being miskeyed. The right to object um, is very similar again to um, the right to rectification and the right to restrict processing. Um, if the data subject uh, feels that their data is either incorrect or is not being uh, uh, processed um, in a in a way that's uh, consistent with the purpose that it was collected for, they have the right to object to that processing. And at that point, um, um, the processing would be restricted and, uh, and would be stopped um, you know, completely whilst that, uh, that is investigated. The right to manual processing, again, in an HR sense, I'm struggling to think of a good example, but if I go back to the banking example again, um, you can imagine a situation where um, a bank has a, an automated system um, to approve or disapprove uh, mortgage applications, uh, for example. Um, if that uh, bank has an auto automated process and the bank says no or the computer says no, um, then the data subject has the right to request manual processing. Now, what that actually means is that a person has to look at this information and has to be able to uh, then make a judgment as to whether 
um, they agree with the the, com the computer's decision, or whether um, uh, they actually think that the, the the person should be allowed the mortgage and um, uh, and the computer should be overrided. So in a in an HR sense, I can't think of a a particularly good um, um, analogy there that would uh, work or a particularly good situation, but it's something that uh, you need to be able to consider and that you need to. Um, uh, that your systems need to be able to uh, cater for. Are HR system uh, departments different? I I think HR system, systems and um, departments themselves are, are different because of the amount of personal data um, they actually collect. It's very difficult to think of another um, part of a an organisation. Uh, that collects um, so much personal data. Um, you know, if you were if you were looking for a, a source of information that would allow you to clone identities of people, HR departments are the ideal location. Uh, you've got the the person's name, address, their um, their social security or uh, tax numbers or uh, national insurance numbers, for example. Uh, you've um, got passports or um, identity numbers. Um, you're particularly for European citizens. Um, you've got uh, data that's often extracted, uh, perhaps um, you're going to other systems such as a payroll system, for example. Um, and it's often held in multiple systems, uh, perhaps for jurisdictional requirements. Um, uh, sometimes data is held in, a, in a, a European system, but has to be uh, um, reconciled to a, a system in another part of the world, for example. Um, and often the information is stored in you know, document management systems for you know, medical information might be um, maybe uh, based in that way. And many organizations, I'm sure there's people on the, um, on the webinar today, many systems are, um, still have a component of paper-based filing too. Um, so that um, maintaining that uh, filing cabinet in the corner of your office or filing cabinets in the corner, corner of your office um, actually falls in the scope of, uh, of the GDPR. So that's why I think that uh, HR departments are special. And that also brings us to the, the need for an HR data controller. Now, this is something that Chris and I have um, talked about at some, um, some length and the, and the correct terminology for this. But um, we, finally, um, we finally agreed on uh, HR data controller. Now, you remember the term data controller is actually defined as um, uh, an organization or entity um, that determines the purpose and the nature of collection of the data um, for the entire organization. Well, that HR data controller um, does that just for the HR data. So this might be the, uh, the head of HR, um, you know, someone, someone like that, a very senior person within, uh, within HR, and they would work with um, the data protection officer, so the top, uh, the top person, the person uh, really responsible for data within, uh, within an organization. They would work with that person to ensure that they are um, remaining compliant with uh, the GDPR, um, but um, with a particular focus on, uh, on HR data and a particular understanding of uh, HR data. So they would understand the HR data purpose and define the HR data purpose, uh, understand and validate um, the, the data classification, and as I say there, work with the data protection office, officer to ensure the security and compliance 
uh, with uh, GDPR and other data protection requirements around the world. Um, um, you know, we have people on the line from um, Bermuda, for example, and other jurisdictions, but the EU isn't the only um, location where there are uh, data protection requirements um, for um, uh, for individuals. Uh, Bermuda has its own uh, requirement, for example, um, uh, PIPA or PIPA, which, uh, which will be coming into place in a similar time frame as, uh, as the GDPR. So it's important that HR departments understand those. I said, uh, promised earlier on that we'd uh, talk more about um, personal data and uh, and how that's defined. There's the full definition there, and I'll leave you guys to um, to read that rather than reading that all out to you. But that's the full definition of uh, personal data as defined by uh, the GDPR Article 4. And the GDPR, the text itself, is freely downloadable. Um, if you just do a Google search, um, you'll find... Um, uh, well, you'll get lots of hits, but if you um, look for GDPR regulation um, or even search for GDPR Article 4, um, you'll probably get, uh, um, you'll reduce the number of hits um, and be able to find the, uh, uh, the regulation to be able to download that and look at that if that's useful for you. So for HR departments, I think um, the, the key pieces of information that become personal data are things like um, names, uh, passport um, ID or um, or ID number, uh, national insurance tax numbers, um, social security IDs, uh, bank account details, any assessment information. So any judgment you, that you make on an individual is also covered by um, by the GDPR and considered to be uh, personal information. And employee ID. So the key aspect here is that um, in the middle or the second line of uh, the, the definition there, it talks about um, the information can be used to identify a person either directly or indirectly. And that's why all these ID numbers are actually, uh, they're indirect ways of identifying an individual. So combined with um, you know, another data source, um, you could identify an individual purely from their, their passport or from their, uh, their national insurance or social security number um, or from uh, their employee ID, for example. And that's why um, all of those, um, those ID numbers are, are considered to be personal information. And as I said earlier on, uh, physical copies of documentation um, are, are very much within the scope here. Um, you know, the first um, the first two words there of uh, Article Four: any information. It's not any digital information or any uh, paper-based information. It's any information, irrespective of the the way it's stored or the medium it's stored on. Personal sensitive data, now as I explained earlier on, it's a different class of um, sensitive data and it really goes to um, uh, very personal aspects. Um, some of the information captured here is um, information um, that has been used to persecute people uh, previously, whether it be ethnicity, uh, trade union membership, um, sexual orientation, those kind of things. Um, health information is also covered at this point um, as well. Um, and a new addition to the GDPR is biometrics and genetic information. Um, that's also uh, now considered to be uh, personal sensitive information. Um, personal sensitive information has to be treated um, with um, uh, additional care and there has to be additional risk uh, assessments around the information and the way that it's stored. 
many organizations are, uh, are encrypting everything to do with personal sensitive information to help reduce the risks. The GDPR itself does not mandate that um, early editions of um, the regulation did actually um, uh, suggest that, that, that um, encryption was going to be enforced for personal sensitive data, but it's not actually um, enforced. Um, for HR departments, uh, I've uh, said this a couple of times already on the webinar, it's a rich source of sensitive um, uh, information, personal information as a whole. Um, so do make sure and take um, uh, you know, take special note of the, the different classifications of data that uh, your HR department um, is holding. first right um, within the GDPR is the right to be informed um, so the data subject understands exactly why um, the data is being collected. Um, you can't be informed without understanding why the data is being collected and how it's going to be used and you know, to some extent how long it's going to be kept for. Um, so a data collection purpose very much defines that, and that's um, you know, a key part of uh, the Data Protection Act and uh, the GDPR is um, is presenting that information to the uh, to the data subject. And um, in all but exceptional cases, you have to present that information before um, the personal information is gathered. Now, that's not always possible. For example, in an HR setting, someone may email their um, their CV or their resume uh, to you. Um, they may do that, um, you know, without any um, any prior warning or request. Um, in which case, you know, that's perfectly acceptable that they haven't been um, given the collection. They've offered the information um, freely, understanding the, um, that they're um, that they're providing that information to be used for the purposes of a job application, uh, whether that be speculative or advertised. Um, that. Uh, that's the case. Uh, best practice would say that you would um, respond to any um, any CVs that you're actually going to use and maintain, and uh, with your uh, data collection purpose in that case, and uh, provide the the data subject the reassurance that the data isn't then just going to be added to a marketing database or something like that, or sold on, uh, which uh, with which without their permission would be uh, uh, would be illegal. And you must also ensure that. Um, if the information, their personal data is going to be accessed by third parties, that those third parties are um, clearly listed uh, within um, the, uh, the data policy and the notification of the, the data purpose. Combining um, HR and payroll systems is one of those areas I personally believe is going to become a real hot topic for uh, HR departments over the next um, couple of years, well, probably less than a couple of years, over the next um, year as the um, the full impact of uh, the GDPR starts to, to sink in. Um, you know, my statement that I make there at the top, the more intersections and exports and interfaces that the system has, the greater the risks. Now, the reason for that is that um, as you export data, um, particularly if you're exporting it into um, into a, uh, a spreadsheet, for example, um, once you've exported it into a spreadsheet, even if that spreadsheet has a password applied to it and is, it is encrypted, you do lose control of that data. It moves outside of the, the protective and controlled um, enclave of HR um, and you know, potentially enters the Wild West um, because um, 
Uh, a spreadsheet can obviously be emailed around very easily. Our email systems are very efficient at spreading and distributing information like that. And if it's only protected by a password, well, passwords can be emailed around as well, um, particularly where it's a, a static password. So there are um, you know, very good reasons for you know, not emailing around personal information. Um, I will actually just talk about one small anecdote. This one amused me um, greatly. And I'm trying to remember the country, but I think it was Sweden. Uh, it's one of the Nordic countries. Anyway, um, relatively recently, a large, um, a large IT company was doing a large project um, for, I'm going to carry on saying Sweden, but the, uh, the Swedish um, um, Drivers License Association. Um, so these are the people who are processing all the driving licenses and things like that. And um, um, this particular IT company, they emailed um, in um, in you know in an unencrypted um, spreadsheet um, all of the personal information of all of the people um, that were you know currently being processed. Um, when this was pointed out to them, um, they then replied to that email saying, "Oh, please delete all of this information as as it's highly sensitive." So they then um, you know compounded the problem by pointing out how useful and um, and sensitive this information was, and then just asked the third party to delete it. Um, those kind of things, um, you know. Whilst I, uh, I really hope that those of you on the webinar today aren't doing those, uh, you know, aren't uh, emailing spreadsheets with that kind of information in clear text. Those kind of mistakes do do happen. Um, you know, partly because staff don't always understand the sensitivity of the information they're dealing with, um, but um, you know, partly because um, it's very easy to do. It's very easy to e export information from uh, systems. So. Um, look at the risk assessments uh, or perform risk assessments based around how your systems are interfacing with um, other systems in your in, in your HR system estate. Um, minimize the exports um, and extracts that uh, that are performed. Um, if you do have to extract data, um, you know to um, to provide some uh, interface or to do payroll or something like that, do the risk assessment around that. But at the very least, I would recommend that you start to um, increase the seniority of the people who have to have to do that, or who actually can do that, um, to uh, to try and minimise the the risks associated. In putting together this um, uh, this webinar, I was um, thinking very much and working with uh, some of Chris's team. Um, we spoke about um, the life cycle um, of you know, an employee life cycle and their personal data life cycle, really, uh, and try to put together um, some, um, you know, some key points in an employee's um, uh, stage, you know, the stages that an employee goes through and some of the data that might be collected at that point in time and uh, and how it might be used, um, you know, thinking about how it might be used. So uh, this, I think, is um, always hopefully uh, for you guys a, a useful diagram as well. I'm sure that you've um, you've thought about this, perhaps thought about it in different ways, and I'm sure that you can add um, further examples, uh, specific examples for your organisation um, in, uh, in when you look at it and you try to consider it in this way. Um, but the key aspects here are that there are very different stages. Um, where you're going to be collecting data and processing data potentially in different ways. Um, 
the key aspect here is that you, um, you have controls and that your systems support controls at all of these junctures um, and that you can ensure the security and the privacy of the data, um, particularly the personal data and the personal sensitive data, but all of the data that you're collecting as part of an HR department. Data retention is a really hot topic. Whenever I speak to HR people about um, uh, GDPR, um, there's always lots of questions about um, data retention. Now, what the GDPR says about data retention is that you can't keep a personal data or personal sensitive data beyond the time that is reasonable for the provision of the purpose. Okay, so if um, someone's providing their CV, as a, uh, in this example, if they're providing their CV to you, um, they're not expecting you to maintain that, um, that, that data or keep that data for 20 years, for example. That's likely to be considered um, unreasonable. Now, if they're providing that information to you as a CV archivist, you know, someone who uh, keeps and collates um, um, CVs for some strange hobby, um, then obviously um, they're, they're entering into that with a whole different agreement. And your purpose, your data collection purpose, would state why you're, why you're collecting the data and that you're collecting it as an archivist, not, um, not offering them a, a job. So you have to consider um, what is reasonable for your organization um, what's a, a reasonable retention period? So what I've tried to define here and on the next slide is some reasonable retention periods. For your organization, it may you may think, actually, we need to keep the data for longer or actually we wouldn't want to keep it for as long as that. And that's all fine. It has to be appropriate to your organization. But here's some best practice guidelines um, that, uh, that, I, that I put together uh, for the purpose of, the, of this webinar. So you can see the couple of key stages here. Um, the CV or resume is submitted um, right at the beginning here. That kicks off the, uh, the process. And we've got the uh, initial, initial personal data is uh, collected. It may be in an unstructured form, you know, in the form of a resume. So, you know, the, the name and telephone number, email address may be at the top of the document, maybe at the bottom of the document. It's not going to be in a, in a database or in a structured uh, form. You may transcribe it into one, of course, um, but in the way that it's provided, it's not, uh, not necessarily going to be structured. Okay. Um, ideally, at that point, you have made the candidate um, aware of uh, your um, of the purpose and uh, the data retention policy, so they know that you're going to keep the um, uh, you know keep the CV on record for a period of time. Um, and if they have any real concerns about that, um, they can obviously um, you know reject or they can ask the data for the data to be deleted at some um, some later um, some later time if that's appropriate. Here we've used um, the um, role field date plus two years. Now, why two years? Well. Two years seems like a um, um, the upper limit in my uh, in my experience of where you'd actually want to go back and try and re you know uh, revisit or hire someone who who you'd spoken to before. Um, in some instances, you may want that to go longer if your organisation um, you know retains people for a particularly long time, um, and uh, you know once you've 
found someone who's uh, who's got a really good CV, you want to be able to go back to them, um, you know, even after four or five years. That's absolutely fine as long as you can justify that to uh, the uh, data protection authority, um, you know, in your in, in your country or in the uh, the region that you'll be uh, dealing with them. Um, you know, should there be a data breach, then you need to be able to explain that. Now, during that post-hiring phase, um, the uh, the candidate could obviously come back at any point in that time and say, what data are you holding on me? Uh, what personal data do you hold? In which case, you have to be able to go back and say, well, we uh, got on file your um, your resume. Um, we've got on file um, your telephone number um, and some details about uh, when, we, uh, when we interviewed you. Now, at that point in time, if they feel that they would never want to work with your um, with your organization they could actually ask um, to be removed and um, you know uh, invoke their right to be forgotten their right to erasure um, and at that point in time you'd have to um, have to be able to honor that unless it was a particularly um, you know complex um, situation or the data was required for um, some secondary purpose which they'd already been made aware of Okay, so you, as I said earlier on, you can um, deny some of those requests, but they have to be again, it has to be defensible, not just on the grounds that actually we don't want to delete that information, it's more convenient for us if we keep it. Now, obviously. Employment is a little bit more complicated. There's more touch points. It's a longer duration. And I've tried to detail out and capture some of that. Um, you know, any diagram of this kind um, is always going to be a simplification. So um, you guys um, looking at this, you might think, oh, well, we've got that situation or this scenario and we need to be able to uh, cater for this and that as well. So um, build those uh, those thoughts into um, um uh, you know, into what I'm presenting here as well. But I've broken this down into um, a number of areas here, um, it really the three areas. And you could say that um, making someone a pensioner um, uh, could also be um, uh, another stage. But I've covered the three key areas here of employment. So when an employee first joins, they enter into a probationary period, you're going to do the majority of data collection um, at this point, um, you know, the, the uh, employees, um, well, the employee ID is going to be assigned, their name, uh, their address, the next of kin details may well be um, collected at this point in time. Um, if you're working within a jurisdiction that requires um, you know, formal identification, validation of um, uh, identity, you know, uh, such as a passport or, or ID card, um, you're going to be capturing that information. Um, right up until the point when the pro when the probationary uh, period is uh, passed. Now, at, um, usually, uh, most organisations, certainly at fifth step, when someone passes their probation, uh, we have um, uh, an interview and an assessment um, takes place there. We'll be capturing that assessment information. Obviously, as I mentioned earlier on, assessment information is considered to be personal information too. Um, so we'll be capturing that information. And... As um, their employment um, continues, we'll be collecting more um, assessment information, more personal information about them, more information about their next of kin, uh, potentially. You know, if uh, their situation changes, if they get um, if they get uh, married or um, uh, make a civil partnership or something like that during that period of time, um, their situation changes, perhaps they get divorced, you'll be collecting and updating or having them ideally update their own information as they go through right up until the point of the last day of their employment. 
Okay, at which point um, the, the clock starts to tick as to how long you can then actually um, retain their information and who should have access to that information uh, from that point. Now, what I've done here is I've broken this down into, an, into a number of different groups and you'll notice that um, right up until the last one, uh, I'm saying that um, the information should be deleted or highly restricted. Now, um, highly restricting the data um, in some cases might be the most um, attractive thing to do in order to, uh, that should that person rejoin the organization, um, then you have all of the, the details and the information still on record and you can um, uh, re-enliven those, for example. Um, but you have to consider, um, you know, serious consideration as to uh, whether it's um, reasonable to maintain that information um, and just restrict the processing. Um, in most cases, restricting the processing will be perfectly fine, okay? Um, but you need to uh, make sure that that's, uh, that's reasonable at all points. Um, so I've really laid out here that uh, you've got the last day of employment plus six months and the last day of employment plus one year. And then we go on over onto the, um, onto the far right where we've, um, where we've put the last day of employment plus seven years. So uh, plus six months, we're um, restricting or deleting sensitive personal information. Um, if the person hasn't rejoined within that six-month period, um, then at that point we're, we're taking the decision as to whether they're uh, whether we want to keep their information, their sensitive personal information, any longer than we've uh, than we than we already have. Um, and the one year. Can I ask you a question about this? Yeah, please do, Chris. So, based on this model, if you then hold data in multiple sources so that you've got both paper-based data, you've got an HR system, you've got a payroll system, you've got other systems. Um, this is going to make it very complex then for uh, being able to delete those data, that data at that, at that particular point, to be able to control that data. Do you want to comment on that, please? Yeah, um, it does. You're right, Chris. There's a, um, one of the points I'll make a little bit later on is the, the, the greater that you can simplify your um, your HR system environment, um, the uh, the less um, complexity, the less chance of error, the less um, you know, um, uh, the less um, retention mistakes you're going to make, um, should I say? So, um, you know, if you're going to uh, delete data and you've got a combination of a, a digital system and a paper-based storage system, for example, um, you know, if you're going to retain that information in a um, you know, the, the paper-based information, if you want to retain that and restrict um, access, then obviously you're going to move it into a different filing cabinet that only the head of HR um, can access, for example. Um, if you're going to delete it, then obviously you're going to need um, you know, secure destruction uh, capabilities. Um, if it's a digital system, then deletion becomes that little, little bit or potentially becomes that little bit easier. But you may actually decide that you want to delete all of the personal data um, in one go and retain um, and restrict access um, up until that uh, that deletion point. But very much, Chris, to answer uh, to re-answer your your point, the simpler your HR system estate, um, you know, the less um, paper-based uh, systems that you've got, for example, um, the easier it's going to be to actually enforce and in and to be able to demonstrate that you've enforced. Um, and the, uh, the last one is on the, the seven-year point. That is for all um, tax and salary-related and financial information. Is that correct? 
Yeah, so at that point in time, I mean, the seven years is, um, um, was chosen um, because it's, um, uh, and it's a number of jurisdictions, but a number of jurisdictions have chosen seven years to be the point at which um, taxation information expires. So that's usually the point at which um, an organisation is able to um, trim its, um, you know, its tax records and its employee um, details and uh, reduce those down to the absolute minimum. So at that point, really, we're saying, um, there should be very limited um, justification for keeping uh, personal information um, you know, beyond the we employed you know, this person between this date and this date. Um, beyond that kind of information, it's really going to be quite difficult to justify um, you know, maintaining personal information. Okay, so therefore, if you're so for any payroll system, you've got to retain data up to seven years, but if your data doesn't hold payroll or expense uh, data, then that could be significantly less than seven years based on that model. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, and again, every organization is going to have to make their own judgment um, as to which, uh, you know, which duration is appropriate for their own organization. The purpose of putting these together was to, um, um, to provide some um, thought, you know, structure to the thought patterns that um, that I, as a you know, as someone who's been involved with data protection for some time, um, far longer than I like to think about, um, uh, you know, to put some thought and some structure to that, so people could understand that and make it applicable to their own their own uh, environment. Yeah, and thank you, Dan. And then organisations just need to have their own uh, data retention policy, which which specifies how long they retain data for, um, for what purposes. And, and how they're going to manage the deletion restriction. Um, absolutely. That would be sufficient yep. for them. Yes, absolutely right, Chris. Um, uh, you're 100% you're right there. They need to have that policy. Um, if they're large enough that they have an internal audit um, team, um, then their internal audit team will obviously be measuring and auditing them against that, uh, that criteria. If they, um, you know, if, you're, if your organization is not large enough to have its own in, internal audit, um, then it may be that if you do have a breach and you should uh, be investigated by uh, the Data Protection Authority, um, if it be, you know, that serious a breach, um, then obviously you'll need to be uh, demonstrating that um, you do have a data destruction um, uh, and life cycle process um, and that you do have data retention policies and that you can clearly state as to you know when data will be dis destroyed how it will be destroyed and that it will be securely destroyed particularly in the case of um, well both digital data and physical um, you know physical documents you need to be able to destroy those um, securely not just um, you know put them in the um, the dumpster behind the uh, uh, behind the building great thank you Darren These are, um, uh, so this uh, title of this uh, slide, um, is your HR system helping you uh, achieve compliance? Um, there are a number of factors um, that will um, help your organization demonstrate um, compliance with the GDPR and achieve um, compliance with the GDPR. I've put these ones together um, as some, um, some high level um, uh, pieces that, um, that I definitely think are important. And they're, they're important not only uh, for the GDPR, um, but they are increasingly important and considered to be best practice and you know, standard aspects um, for, uh, for systems around the world. And increasingly, regulators are getting together at regulator uh, uh, parties, 
kind of, some kind of stranger events those would be, but getting together at regulator parties and discussing the things that they're implementing in their regions and applying them um, across regions. So you see many of these kinds of things will be uh, represented in regulation for financial services companies, but they'll also be uh, mentioned in uh, standard best practices um, for other uh, industry sectors as well. And not just again in Europe, um, uh, for example, for financial services companies, there's a, a naturally named um, um, uh, NYCRR 500 um, regulation in New York, uh, which uh, requires organizations to do many of these things, not specifically for HR systems, but to implement many of these aspects um, and to limit the number of interfaces and things like that, all the things that we've been describing during this webinar. So um, let's run through um, some of these um, and the importance of some of them. Multi-factor authentication. Um, it's a bit of a technical term, so um, for those of you who don't understand what it is, um, multi-factor authentication is when you have one of those little RSA tokens that comes up with the six numbers that change once a minute, or you get a text message from your bank um, that says, you know, type in this six-digit code um, to, um, to validate you are who you say you are when you log in, those kind of things. That's multi-factor authentication. So the ability for your system, your HR system, to ensure that, um, that you are who you say you are um, through more than one uh, factor. So not just using a user ID and password, for example. That's the whole key aspect to that. Integrating the payroll system, um, that's really a, a, a simplification of the you know, limit the number of interfaces and exports you have to do um, of this, uh, this personal data. Um, you know, break it down to a, a absolute li um, minimum and integrating your payroll system is very much um, you know, part and parcel of that. That's where many HR departments um, have uh, some of their greatest exposures is um, exporting that data into a, a CSV file or an Excel spreadsheet and then uh, sending it over to their, you know, sending it over to their payroll uh, partner. Um, data encrypted in transit. Um, so in transit means as it travels across um, the, um, uh, the network within your organization, but also as it travels across the internet to your organization or to, to and from your organization, particularly if you're using a, a cloud-based um, system as indeed um, exceeds HRD. Um, having session timeouts. So once you've actually logged into the system, does it actually you know, log you out after five or 10, 15 minutes, whatever period of time is, is reasonable? And ideally that's configurable as well. I don't know about you, but it's uh, really frustrating sometimes if you just take a phone call and uh, all, your, all of your systems have uh, actually logged you out. So making that uh, configurable is, uh, is a nice, uh, nice aspect there. Ideally your HR system should ensure good password a uh, good password policy. This um, should again be configurable uh, to meet your uh, organisation's uh, your organisation's password policy. Um, should it uh, should it have one, um, but making sure that pa passwords are um, appropriately complex would be. Darren, I know we've got a number of uh, people on uh, the call today, the webinar today, who use the Exceed HR system, mm. and uh, they will know that everything you've covered so far. Is, is part of um, our solution. Mm -hmm. And all of these settings are fully configurable um, to uh, align with you know, your policies, your processes, and your practices um, uh, to make sure you're controlling and managing your data. Yep, that's excellent stuff, Chris. 
Um, okay, data encrypted at rest. Um, so once it actually reaches the the HR system, it's actually encrypted um, with on uh, you know, on the uh, on the database. Uh, the importance of the ability for the um, for staff to be able to maintain their own data. Um, you know, talked about that a number of times um, during here um, during this webinar. Um, people have to be able to update their data, or the ha or you have to provide the ability for that data to be updated. Um, part of the GDPR. It becomes your responsibility as the data controller to maintain the quality of that data and make sure that it's up to date. So if you're not providing the ability for people to maintain their own data, um, you're going to be um, uh, probably having to employ um, your additional staff to maintain that data on, on their behalf. Um, so just have a think about um, that from that perspective. Um, the ability to, um, I always say this word incorrectly, so I'm going to give it my best stab, compartmentalize. Oh, there we go. It's not so bad. Compartmentalize um, data. Um, so that means um, you know, breaking personal data and personal sensitive data out into different areas and um, to be able to control who sees that uh, data. Um, uh, you know, so uh, a person's manager shouldn't be able to see all of their personal information or personal sensitive information where that's not appropriate, you know, where that's inappropriate. Um, so being able to split that information out and not just have a, um, you know, you can either log in and you can either have access to the HR system and see everything or you don't have an access. Um, that's, um, you know, these days it's not appropriate for HR systems to do that, if it ever was, but certainly not these days. And some of the more sophisticated systems, Darren, enable you to uh, configure those that data down into quite a lot of granular detail. So, for example, you may have an HR business partner who can only see specific data for a specific part of the organization, whether it's a, a department globally or whether it's a team locally in a specific country. So you, if you're able to segregate that, that level down, that level of granular detail, um, uh, that's, that's when you consider when you're looking at um, systems that can manage your data to that level of detail. Yeah, absolutely. Good point there, Chris. Uh, GDPR reporting, um, you're going to increasingly see organisations talking about how, um, you know, how appropriate it is um, um, to monitor and help you understand uh, where you are, um, you know, where you're exceeding your, um, your retention, for example, of, um, of, of, of certain information uh, and things like that. So expect to see that kind of thing uh, coming online. Yeah. And within Exceed, we're working. Uh, with uh, Fifth Step and Darren's team on a series of GDPR compliance reports, um, and those are going to be made available, you know, to um, all of our existing clients um, uh, before uh, GDPR actually goes live uh, next year. Great stuff. Okay, we're just about reaching the end, towards the end of our presentation, so. Um, we're going to move into um, uh, Q&A in, uh, in just a moment. So um, if anyone has got any questions that they want to ask, we'll certainly do our best to um, answer as many of those as possible. Um, but um, what we will do is um, on the podcast version of this, um, of this webinar, uh, we'll actually answer all of the questions or any of the questions that we don't get to answer um, on this uh, live session today. So, um, so anyone who wants to ask any questions, do please um, start asking those now. You should be able to see um, a, a way and means of asking those questions within your um, GoToWebinar um, client there.
So what should you do next as an HR department? Um, first step, you should look at um, um, appointing, um, um, potentially hiring, but appointing an HR data controller. Um, this is probably going to be your head of um, head of HR. It might be um, someone else senior within, uh, within HR. But the ideal is they have a good understanding of HR data, how the data is used, and the HR processes. Um, so how the data is processed and how it moves through the organization. And that needs to be for all systems, not just uh, the digital systems or not just the paper-based systems. Uh, they need to have a good understanding of all of those, ideally. Data categorization and mapping. So understanding what data you're collecting, um, how it's uh, categorized in terms of the, uh, of the GDPR. Um, so whether whether it's uh, personal data, whether it's personal sensitive data, or, or whether it doesn't fall into either of those categories um, under the GDPR, and it's um, you know it's not GDPR applicable data. Understanding the data purpose or purposes, um, you know, so why you're collecting the data, uh, you, I would imagine that most HR departments are going to have. At least two. Um, if you have a um, if you have a pension scheme that's managed by the organisation, you may have uh, a, you know a third one for that. Um, but you're going to have at least two. Um, one for um, hiring, so for the processing of candidates' data, and one for the processing of um, employee data. You're going to need to look at your HR systems and their ability to comply with uh, the GDPR and how they're helping helping you. Use some of the criteria uh, on the previous slide to, to help you with that. Obviously, if you're um, you know if you're uh, lucky enough to already be working with uh, Chris and the XE team, then obviously you're going to uh, be well on your path, uh, well, on, well on the way uh, with that. Um, in fact, already uh, already there for the majority of those things. Working with the data protection officer, you're going to need to um, create a data incidents, data incident response plan. What do you do if you have a data breach? Who do you communicate with? Um, what actions are you going to take? Um, how are you going to mitigate the problem? Now, under the GDPR, um, a the organisation has to have one of these. Okay, and that goes for whether it's um, personal data belonging to customers, or clients, or whether it be um, personal data belonging to your staff. Um, the GDPR doesn't differentiate between those two; it's all the same. Um, but you must have a plan, okay, and that plan must be able to demonstrate um, the ability to report to the Data Protection Authority, so that would be the Information Commissioner's Office um, here in the UK. Um, there are many uh, others across uh, across Europe, um, but you must be able to demonstrate your ability to report any data breach um, within 72 hours of it being discovered. Now, that's not just to say, oh, we've um, you know we've had uh, a million records um, go missing. Don't really know how, you know, um, uh, but uh, we thought we'd let you know. Actually, within that 72-hour period, you have to understand the nature of the records you've lost. You know, are they just HR records? Are they customer records as well? Um, the type of data that's been lost, the likely impact to the data subject. So is this going to be, you know, if you lost financial data, are they going to be getting spurious charges to their credit card or, um, you know, to their bank? Um, is it loss of identity? You know, have you lost uh, lost uh, biometric information, for example? Have you lost details of their passport? Um, other information that might be used um, to, to clone their identity. And you also have to say how you've mitigated that and how you intend to mitigate the issue. 
Um, in, it's not uncommon these days if there is a data breach for organisations to buy um, identity protection um, coverage um, for um, you know for the the staff or the data subjects who have been uh, um, at the heart of the breach. So consider those kind of things, and all of those things have to be answered within 72 hours. Now, if it's an exceptionally large breach, you can go to the um, data protection authority and say. Um, we've done this, we've done this, we're investigating this, this is where we are right now. That's okay, okay? But you have to be able to demonstrate that you've got a plan and that you're working to it and that actually it's the size and the nature of the breach that is delaying you, not that you weren't prepared for the, for the breach. And the final point there, the yellow uh, chevron there, um, is to be able to demonstrate compliance. Uh, this isn't about um, just... Um, you know, just ticking boxes um, and, you know, hoping that everything goes okay. It's actually being able to demonstrate the compliance on an ongoing basis because if um, a data subject were to, um, you know, make a, um, a data subject request, you know, a personal information request, um, if they should do that, um, then you have to be able to uh, present the information back to them if they ask for their data to be deleted and then, uh, you know, subsequently ask for a data information, a personal information request and the data is still there that they've asked to be deleted, um, then obviously you won't be demonstrating compliance and they would be perfectly within their rights and you probably would find they would be making a complaint to the Data Protection Authority. Um, now, that such a complaint is unlikely, except in a, a very um, extreme case, but it's unlikely to attract a full um, you know, 20 million euro um, fine, but you could find yourself um, you know, being fined or note being taken. Um, um, you know, by that data protection authority um, to indicate that you've perhaps not been following the process. You're certainly going to get a warning, even if you don't get a fine. Great. Okay. Well, so, so Darren, there are really sort of three key parts to this. One is is that you've got to have a set of GDPR processes and procedures that enable you to be compliant. Secondly, you've got to have a, a plan which you then put in place. And thirdly, you've got to have a way to be able to audit that piece on a regular basis. Is that a sort of a, a sort of high-level summary? Yes, I think that's a fair summary, Chris, yeah. And, 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 and it's, it's, it potentially, it is a, 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 in order to have a fully documented set of processes and procedures that are enabling you to be GDP compliant, how how far would it be reasonable to take it? You know, to to be ready by by May, um, and 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 do you see this as an ongoing piece of work, or is there a finite piece that has to be ready by May of next year? Okay, so um, the GDPR is enforceable from May twenty fifth next year. Um, the uh, Information Commissioner's Office and uh, other data protection authorities around um, Europe um, have indicated that it, there will be a, a soft landing. They've used um, various different phrases, um, but have indicated there'll be a soft landing. Now, where they will um, be more um, harsh, let's say, or more likely to, uh, to find people is where they can see absolutely no evidence of them taking any notice of GDPR, you know, they're completely uncompliant, haven't been bothered, haven't, you know, attended webinars like this and taken action. Um, uh, they will be more likely to, um, you know, find and find more heavily. Now, if you can demonstrate to, um, you know, a data protection authority that you, um, 
um, that you have processes and procedures in place. Uh, they may not be fully there, but you have processes and procedures in place. My belief is that they'll be more lenient. Now, it will depend on the cases and the nature of the breach, but your aim should be to be compliant by uh, 25th of May uh, next year. Uh, but you certainly need to be able to demonstrate that you've got a project uh, or program of work that's underway and that you are um, you know, working with your um, you know, HR system uh, provider in this particular case to um, you know, ensure the data is, that your personal data and personal sensitive data is protected. Okay, that's great. That's really useful, Darren. So really, it's an, it's an, it's an ongoing process of continuous improvement. You know, get to a reasonable and appropriate level uh, by May of next year and then have an ongoing program to improve that, enhance that over time. Yeah, and uh, I mean, one of the things, I, I didn't include it to Chevron um, on here, but you know, one of the things that Fifth Step certainly uh, believes in is a, is a process, process of continual improvement. You know, uh, and we believe that in many different ways, but in, in terms of um, GDPR, um, GDPR is most definitely a journey and not a destination. It's going to evolve. There are going to be new scenarios that are going to be faced by departments. And HR departments are going to be quite near the forefront of some of that because of the level and type of data that they hold. So making sure that, you know, from an HR department, if nothing else, that your organization is in, in good shape, you know, really is a good um, starting point. There's going to be lots of, lots of other touch points within the organization where personal data is likely to be captured. But making sure you're in good shape um, from, uh, um, yeah, from an HR perspective is, um, you know, is something you really should be doing and being able to demonstrate that, um, that process of improvement and, uh, and, the, and the, uh, the steps you've taken so far. Okay, thank you. I'm conscious about time, Darren. I'm going to ask, uh, make one more statement, and I'll let you answer a few questions. I'm okay. conscious that people want to drop off. Um, for those um, of our clients that are on uh, today's call, thank you very much for joining the call today. As a next step for this, uh, we will be doing another webinar which will talk specifically uh, to our own existing clients. Um, about um, how our system enables you to be GDPR compliant, the steps we're putting in place, uh, and we're also going to run a, a number of workshops as well for those who are interested. So um, we want to work with you to help you put your process and policies and procedures in place. Uh, to that effect, um, if also you want to use an external consultant such as Fifth Step, um, then uh, we would uh, recommend to support that piece. Um, we're not going to do consultancy ourselves. Um, what we're going to do is to provide you with a system to enable you to be compliant. And we are going to um, put in place a, a GDPR um, uh, audit um, uh, service uh, to our clients if they want that uh, for the future. So, Darren, are there any questions that you've had that um, that have come in that you want to respond to, or absolutely, um, are we yeah. going to follow up those later? Well, we'll uh, there's a couple of questions here, um, so I'm going to um, cover those off um, uh, right now. Um, and uh, and please, if um, if there are other questions, um, you all should have received an email uh, today with my email address. Um, in do please, if you think of these afterwards, do please. Um, uh, mail them over. We'll be putting together the uh, the podcast and any additional answers over the next uh, probably over the next uh, three or four days or so. So um, if you do think of something, then um, you know do feel free to drop those by email. So let's get to the first question. Um, Amy, your question was: um, 
What are your recommendations for global organizations where data needs to be shared outside the EU? Okay, so um, the data that's being shared outside the EU is going to be um, your personal data. I'm making that assumption uh, on your behalf, Amy. Um, there are a number of ways you can do this. Um, um, you can uh, have an organization um, uh, sign a contract, which uh, essentially ties them into uh, treating the data um, in a GDPR compliant manner. Okay, so you can do that if you're working with a, a third party, for example. If you're sending the data to a um, to another part of your organisation, um, then it's pretty much a similar uh, process. Making sure that the uh, that the other parts of the organisation understand uh, the nature of the data and the constraints on the use of the data, and that it's not going to be put into a system that then just um, you know. Uh, does mail shots okay so it's a, a, a twofold process okay making sure that um, uh, that you've got a contract in place that stipulates the way the data can be used okay and there are many examples of those um, some organizations call them um, third part um, sorry third country contracts okay because uh, it's uh, the third type of country um, uh, those countries being um, uh, those within the EU, their first countries, second countries are those who have got um, equivalents, uh, GDPR equivalents, and third countries are those who do not have um, uh, GDPR equivalents. Okay. I hope that answers. Darren, on that, can I just add one piece on that? Because hmm. uh, I've seen this before, and I've been asked this a number of times uh, by some of our clients, and certainly in some of the presentations I've given on this, is that um, the personal data um, held on employees such as their home address details, such as their bank details, passport details. That information is primarily used um, for payroll processing, for benefits, for pensions, for contracts. All of that information um, is really, should only really be used for the specific country that they're in. You don't need to move that information or make that information accessible outside of that country. So if you have a global solution and you have an HR team who needs to be able to see data globally, what you may want to consider is actually hiding all that personal information to that group of people and only allowing them to see, for example, role data, salary data, performance data. So that will reduce the sensitivity of data that you're moving um, uh, cross country and cross border. Yeah, that's an excellent, um, an excellent um, yeah, mitigation uh, there, Chris. Good. Okay. Um, uh, Amy, the uh, last piece I will add to that um, to answering your question. So, um, if you should be sending the data um, outside of, of Europe, it still remains your responsibility or your organisation's responsibility to ensure ongoing compliance with the GDPR. Just because you've sent the data elsewhere doesn't mean it's out of sight, out of mind. Your organisation is still um, liable should that data be lost um, or breached um, um, you know, from a third party that you've provided it to or to an inter you know, a different part of the organisation in a different jurisdiction. Okay, I'm going to run through these next ones. Um, uh, Nick, um, privacy notice or re-privacy notice. Um, given to candidates on new hires, uh, do you have to decide lawful reason for collecting data, e.g. E consent to fulfill a contract or to comply with the law? Um, uh, yes, um, Nick, you do. Um, however, it can, the, 
the purpose has to be in plain English. Um, so it can be very much uh, you're providing this information to um, facilitate the uh, employment process. Uh, you can certainly um, go into details of um, you know why do I need why do we need to see your passport, for example. Um, you can certainly go into the the details of you know it's the employment process and to comply with um, you know uh, local regulation. Um, I hope that answers your question. But yes, it needs to be clear uh, and plain English as well. Though. Uh, Paul, um, okay, you have asked, I'm thinking of issuing a range of privacy notices over the life cycle, one pre-hiring, two uh, offer an application process once hired, uh, one pre-induction, induction, new employees, etc. Does this seem like a reasonable um, a reasonable approach? You've listed out a few there, Paul, I'll just summarise them back. Um, that could be a reasonable approach if um, the way that you're going to use the data or the type of data you're collecting is going to change dramatically. Um, it's probably not. So you might want to think about how you could simplify that if you could just put one purpose um, and actually the data collected is going to be um, you know, for the purpose of employment, um, um, you know, meeting um, uh, regulatory requirements and legal requirements, um, you know, processing payments those kind of things. You're unlikely, or uh, you know, perhaps post um, probation, if you're including them in other benefits such as um, you know, uh, medical cover or life cover or something like that, you may be um, you know, adding those kind of things either at that point or as part of, you, know, you may say, um, you know, to provide um, other benefits. Okay. One of the ways you may want to cover that is within a contract of employment or within um, a, a, a policy, uh, one of your policies. So rather than giving, uh, c cover it through to the policies and contracts, for example. Yeah, that's true. As long as as long as it's nice and clear, as long as it's drawn out, um, you can certainly repeat it in your um, your contract of employment. Um, you can uh, also repeat it within the employee handbook and those kind of things. Just make sure it's drawn out and clear to um, you know to the data subject to the employee in this case. Um, um, you know, at the point or before they've actually provided their uh, personal information, ideally. Okay, and Amy, back to you again. One more, uh, one more. I think I think this is the last one. Um, should we ask uh, staff for consent if our head office, um, which is outside of the EU, wants to review our data? Um, I would suggest, um, particularly for HR, that you would want to be saying that your data may be processed outside of um, the, the EU um, to facilitate, um, you know, to get consent from the, uh, in the first instance. Okay, so right from the outset, you're saying that uh, your data may be processed in, um, in other countries um, in accordance with um, the, the purpose um, and to the same standards as, you know, as the GDPR, as, as the same standards as um, within Europe. Um, that's um, that's uh, per, uh, permissible. You may, in some extreme cases, for some um, for some people, uh, get an objection to their data being sent to the um, to the United States, for example. I've certainly heard of that in some instances uh, before, um, where they you know they don't want their information being um, going to the US. Um, but in most cases, that will actually uh, cover you off. So um, certainly, you will need to ask for consent. Um, if the data is going to be processed, and remember process means um, collected, stored, changed, updated in any way, or viewed, okay, um, in a country outside of the EU. 
Darren, thank you very much for that. I think now is the time where we will follow up any other questions um, uh, to all of you via email. We'll also send out um, uh, the, the, the slide deck as well. I'd like to thank you all um, for joining today's presentation, specifically thanking Darren uh, for today's webinar and for enlightening us about how simple and easy GDPR is going forward and how we're all going to be uh, compliant in May of next year. It's an exciting challenge and uh, we look forward to working uh, with our clients and prospects around meeting that challenge uh, going forward. So Darren, thank you very much and thank you everyone else and wish you all a very good day. Yep, thanks Chris, thanks everyone for attending.